if you're using marijuana, you are a lazy person. You're probably not going very far in life. And I just felt like those, you know, tenants were kind of built into my brain growing up. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today, we continue our Women of Weed series with the author and entrepreneur who inspired it all. Her name is Ashley Pacillo, and along with her co-author, Lauren Devine, they wrote Breaking the Grass Ceiling, Women, Weed, and Business. In this book, she features 20 women working in the cannabis world, and we get to learn from their stories. Today, Ashley shares about writing the book, about being in business while giving back to the community, and her advice to women who want to get into the cannabis space. After that, in the next weeks and months, I'll interview some of the women featured in this book and other inspiring characters that we meet along the way. If you have anyone that you think should be featured on the Greener Grass podcast, especially female entrepreneurs, scientists, and other movers and shakers, drop me a line with your suggestions at greenergrasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and here's Ashley. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. I'm very happy today to be here with Ashley Pacillo. She is the author of Breaking the Grass Ceiling as well as an entrepreneur of the company Point Seven, and we're really happy to have her here today. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much. The first thing I want to thank you for is your dedication of your book, uh, Breaking the Grass Ceiling, Women, Weed, and Business, and you dedicate it to Mary Jane, the female that brought each of us here. I think that's a beautiful start. <laughs> thank you. This whole industry is very much based on the, on the mother plant. And when you, you know, look at, the, look at these facilities and look at how all of these businesses come together, it starts there. And I think that that's you know, really important to be thinking about as we consider the role that women have um, professionally and career-wise within the space. Yeah, it does get forgotten. These are all female plants. It's too bad that uh, it, become, it can be such a, a male-dominated industry. When I started the process of these interviews, I really wanted to tell the stories about women who had been in the industry since earlier days when the industry was was much more stigmatized. Um, to showcase the challenges that came along with that, especially as mothers and, you know, as women who maybe society wouldn't have expected this from in terms of this is a career choice. And what was really unfortunate and kind of sad as we were going through it was how many of those women are now struggling to hold on to the companies that they started in the first place. And I think that that highlights a bigger problem here that even though our industry has had a history of being very supportive and inclusive of women and, and people of color in general, um, I think that, you know, no industry operates in a vacuum. So if you're in cannabis, which is, like I said, I, I feel like it's a pretty diverse and inclusive space, um, at some point you're still sitting across the table of investors and you're likely sitting across the table of white men. And I think that through that process as companies have reached a certain point revenue wise and investment is needed or whatever, um, we're seeing women get pushed out. And that was again, a, a kind of an unfortunate trend that we, we noticed as we were conducting these interviews. And I think 
that makes this book even more important um, in terms of showcasing those stories so that women exploring opportunities now or women that are in the industry with their own companies are looking for ways to better protect themselves. And um, many of the women that we interviewed offered very concrete advice as to how to go about doing that. How would they protect themselves? Because it sounds like it's more than just the regular uh, your business partner screwing you out of a business, but there's some, you know, the the board measuredly saying, oh, we can't have a woman in charge because that might not look quite as good to investors. I'm not sure if it's the latter, but I think that, you know, one one of the pieces of advice as an example was you know, making sure that when you are starting your own company, that the that the company has its own legal counsel and that you still maintain independent legal counsel for yourself. And that becomes more and more important as, as new investors are added to the table and as equity positions become um, diluted. So that, that was a big piece and just making sure that you truly understand every single thing written down within these operating agreements, because I, you know, I think, at least in my experience, this industry is moving so fast, it's, it can be really easy to overlook things by accident. And I think it can happen to the smartest people, men, men or women. Um, but I, I do feel like women are at a greater risk for this, um, given, you know, given the climate of things now. So, you know, one, one theory I have is that when 2007, 2008, 2009 rolled around, a lot of these women were able to get into the industry and carve out a position for themselves in part because I think some of the traditional, you know, white men who own companies and in other industries were kept at bay by the fact that cannabis was stigmatized and there was potential risk for their other existing companies if they were, you know, dancing in this space as well. So I think it kind of kept a lot of the traditional business people we see in other industries at an arm's length and gave women and, and minorities an opportunity to flourish and get these businesses off the ground. And so as those barriers came down and the industry became more widely accepted and people all over the country started to see this as a huge you know, money-making opportunity for themselves, the floodgates opened. And I think um, you know, that, that was the time where people especially women needed to be very buttoned up in terms of their paperwork and their, um, you know, their, their operating agreements, et cetera. And, and, and unfortunately, I don't think that that happened for a lot of these women and that maybe the pace of how things grew was a, was a factor in that. So what was, what was really interesting and very positive about um, women sharing these stories, even though many of these stories are, are very difficult to share, obviously, um, I felt that most of the women were sharing them with sincere interest in educating other people and really trying to um, prepare women for the unique challenges that our industry has and also offering, you know, very specific advice that they could follow to, to avoid being in a similar position themselves. So I think that that's something that, that makes the book very, um, very special, that the stories themselves are very interesting, but I think there's a lot of takeaways for the reader that could be extremely impactful if you're thinking about starting a company and all of this. It did. It was a lot of, it seems like a lot of really well-honed advice, almost like you were sitting across the table from these women being interviewed. And it, it seemed like it would be a helpful resource for anyone who wanted to get started. Yeah, that was a goal of ours for sure, that it really did feel, um, you know, it felt like 
a conversation that you could have had with any of these ladies. And, and to be fair, you probably could if, if you're in the industry and you're a female and you've come across any of their stories. These are some of the most approachable women. And I think that they all share a real um, interest and in a, a mutual commitment to making sure that women coming in now know more than, than they did. And so for your own story, what was it like when you first came out to Colorado being interested in this industry? <laughs> well, I when I went out to Colorado um, in very early 2014, I, I didn't expect to stay. I had actually signed on to, to start a full-time job in New York City in June of that year running um, business operations for a charter school network throughout the city. And I was really excited about that. And you know, had had signed an apartment, my furniture was there, and I was really going out to, to Denver for what I expected to be a couple of months. Um, it's a place that I'd, I'd wanted to spend more time. I had some family there. And, um, you know, some, some people I knew were getting going on a couple of very small cannabis projects. So I was kind of curious about it, but it didn't really, you know, wasn't wasn't going out there specifically to start any of this. And when I got going and I, I had the opportunity to put together a couple of small events for uh, cannabis companies in the space and, you know, very, very organically built a small little book of business. And I, I started to realize that everything I thought about the industry previously was pretty much wrong and that the types of people working in the space were, you know, definitely in, in need of more operational organization, but that these were real professionals and that this, this space had an enormous amount of opportunity. So at the time I was 25 or 26 years old, I, I felt like I understood what my trajectory would be career-wise in, in the field that I was looking at. And cannabis, I, it, was, it was scary for sure. It's a very volatile space and I wasn't really sure how it would all shape out. But um, what I loved about the opportunity is that I, I felt like the sky was truly the limit and that the path that I was on could take a number of different directions. And I've never been somebody who really wants, you know, my future to be so black and white. So it was, um, it was a surprise to me and, and a surprise to pretty much everyone I know that I wound up in this space, but um, definitely no regrets looking back. That's great. And and you wrote in the book that this industry turned you into an activist. How did that shift happen? That's a great question. So I, I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, you know, my family's very, very liberal, obviously, as, as is the state of Massachusetts. But marijuana was always a drug as I was growing up. And it was pretty much ingrained in me and, and a lot of my friends and peers that cannabis was you know, it was going to, re you're, if you're using marijuana, you are a lazy person, you're probably not going very far in life. And I just felt like those, you know, tenants were kind of built into my brain growing up. And it, when I got in, when I got into the industry and started doing some of those smaller projects and realizing, okay, wait a minute, I'm sitting in a boardroom right now. This isn't, these are highly accomplished people and, and professionals who have done a lot. And I started meeting with patients and realizing that, you know, this is a true medicine that's, that's changing people's lives in, in, in unbelievable ways. And I, I will never forget the first occasions where I was, you know, watching patients um, really benefit from this, especially all of the kids that we were seeing, especially on 
you know, the, the various CNN programs and stuff that were, were depicting these young children um, having or experiencing extreme benefit from cannabis uh, as it related to their epileptic seizures and stuff. So I, I remember all of that being incredibly eye-opening for me because of how I was raised and because of my perception of this plant. And I think it, it, I think that that's a really important story for me to be telling um, and for other people to be telling because it's a relatable story for a lot of people around the country who have been closed off to this for a long time. And I share that because I, I, I want to encourage people to ask more questions and be a little bit more open-minded about what this plant can do. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been in a lot of conversations with people where I know I'm not going to be able to change their minds and that's okay. Um, but I think over time we're going to be able to change a lot of minds, especially if there are people like myself talking about the transition that I went through in my own mind. Um, because I, I think that that's, again, that's where a lot of people are around the U S and, as an industry and as a community, we need to do a better job reaching people where they are and helping them to understand their own knowledge gap as it relates to this. What would you say to um, others in the industry about how to give back as an activist while still in, being in the business world and, and how to support the, the community around this medical marijuana uh, phenomenon? Um, that's actually a big part of what I do with my full-time company, Point Seven Group. So we... Um, we specialize in licensing work around the country. So we work with groups in, we've, we've worked in 14 different states so far, um, helping groups prepare for city, county, or state licensure. And a big part of that, aside from designing facilities with them and, and kind of walking them through products that can be made and, and should be made, and um, of course, writing the actual written responses to the application, a, a big component is talking about um, community plans and neighborhood plans. And I think these businesses want to, in, in general, want to be a part of the communities where they're going to operate. And there's a lot of very specific things that we encourage our clients to do. Um, and really mean, by the way, I mean, you can write anything down on paper to get a license, but I think putting together a community plan that's really aligned to what the community needs and is very you know, authentic in the way it was developed is incredibly important. So, you know, we encourage all of our clients to hire from the local community whenever they can, especially for, you know, key roles. And, and beyond that, how do you support um, vendors and, and third-party contractors within the community? And that's, that's a great um, economic give back, obviously, but I think it goes, it also ties back to what I was saying before about, meeting people where they are and helping them to understand that this industry is, you know, very, very powerful and can do a lot of good for, for a local economy, especially. Um, I think another piece of the, the puzzle and something we work with on, on lots of different client projects is developing um, community education and patient education and physician education, because there's, there's also a big gap there, as you can imagine, in terms of people were really coming to the table with uh, preconceived notions about this. So we've helped a lot of groups put together community presentations so that they can answer questions that are, you know, coming up from those people within the, within the area. So there's, there's a, so many different ways that we can give back. Um, I think there was a period of time in the industry where 
you have industry people who are profiting off of this and you have an activist community that's really been moving the needle forward for decades really in terms of legalization and um you know, I still think that there's a little bit of a, a struggle between those two groups of people. And my hope is that we can, you know, try to overcome that and operate in more, more of a uni- unified way, because the work is important on both sides. The, the industry wouldn't exist without a very strong activist base. And, um, you know, conversely, I think the business side of this is really important. And I'd like to see more of the people who have been here from the beginning remaining in business um, and not being pushed out by you know, larger commercial enterprises coming in. So it's a really interesting conversation, but I think activism is is really at the core of how, you know, how we got here and how we'll continue to move forward. Since you see all of these different leg- legislation around the country and how the regulations actually play out on the ground for someone starting a business, what would you what would you like to see to try to keep those you know maybe grandma medible makers who have been doing this for a couple of decades or or Vietnam vet growers who have been supplying their friends for all this time? How would you see laws written to help them stay in this industry and still be able to you know reap a little bit of the benefit from what they work so hard to legalize? I think the the, the most obvious starting point for that answer is looking at the capitalization requirements when you actually apply for a license. So we've seen some states requiring, you know, a million dollars plus in escrow for you to submit your application. And and unfortunately, that tends to block out minority groups that are interested in applying for these licenses. So I think um, in for new states that are developing programs, I, I think that the, the capitalization requirements are a really important starting place. Um, some states, as I'm sure you're aware, have tried to implement a carve out where there will be a license allocated to, you know, a, a minority owned group. I think those are steps in the right direction, but that there's a there's a lot more room um, for us to improve there throughout the country. In a state like Colorado or California, where it wasn't a merit-based application, in the in the sense that, you know, in Ohio, there's a there were a restricted number of grow license or cultivation licenses, excuse me, issued. Um, whereas in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, etc., these are more like free market states where you go through an application process, but it's a it's a little bit less rigorous. I think that that tends to be helpful to people because it doesn't have that capital requirement at the same level. Um, But, you know, as the market's consolidating, it's really difficult for one-off stores and one-off facilities to stay in business because they don't have the benefit of economies of scale across a number of different sites. So I'd like to explore more of a collaborative approach. Um, I'm working on on a project now that I'm really excited about to try and explore cooperative opportunities for businesses just like the one you described. Um, I think that, you know, Los Angeles and and California in general is is really doing a nice job trying to um, incentivize groups to work with people who have been negatively impacted by, um, you know, outdated laws related to cannabis through the social equity program that's being developed there. So there's, there's some good things in the works. Um, I think there's always a lot of room for improvement and, you know, I, I would, would like to see personally more women and more people of color at the top of these businesses. But, you know, I'm, I'm concerned as the market starts to, um, 
again, kind of consolidate and squeeze out companies that are small, uh, that we're going to lose a lot of that culture. So it's really important to me in the work that we're doing that um, we try to find ways to to promote diversity from the application process all the way forward. Uh, what would what would your practical advice be to a politician trying to help their state um, put in the best uh, cannabis laws they can? Well, one one way to look at it is to look at the the approved list of conditions. So. A state like Arkansas is an example. I never thought that I would be working on cannabis in in Arkansas, but had the pleasure of working with two tremendous groups this past fall there and, you know, visited Arkansas a couple of times, was really inspired by the way that the state is is thinking about cannabis and um, very inspired by the, the set of medical or approved conditions that they put together. I mean, inclusive of pain and inclusive of PTSD, and, you know, if you look back to the way that Illinois, as an example, implemented their program back in 2014, part of the problem, or most of the problems that they ran into had to do with very low patient count. And, you know, most people attribute that low patient count to uh, a limited list of conditions where it was, it was very difficult for you to be registered as a patient. So I think states need to start there. And, um I, I feel like some states are are more restrictive about what those conditions are because they're worried about how to police um, the, the patients that are trying to get these cards. And something like pain is obviously a bit more subjective than, you know, a, a concrete condition. But I think if, if a state really wants to see this program flourish and they want to truly benefit patients, it's in their best interest to put together a comprehensive list of conditions that benefit you know, more people than less. Amen. Amen. In fact, uh, the, <laughs> the uh, RAND just released a study this week that not only uh, do you see less opioid overdoses in states with medical marijuana, but RAND delved in deeper and found that the more liberal the marijuana laws are in a state, the better uh, effect you're going to see on opioid overdoses. And that there's a direct relationship there between writing sane laws that allow this to get out there and saving people's lives. Yep. We talked a lot about this too in working in Ohio over the last year, you know, a state that's been hit really hard by, I mean, the whole country is obviously being hit really hard, but, you know, some states more than others. And um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying there. I think we need to be we just need to, we kind of need to reframe the way the medical community thinks about what medicine is. And, you know, we, there's a lot of patients I've met through the last, over the last few years anyway, that stopped responding to traditional medicine. I mean, one woman in the book, uh, Amy Don, she's an incredible activist. Um, she's from uh, Oklahoma, I believe, originally. And her son, Austin, had been sick for such a long time that he was no longer even responding to pharmaceutical drugs. And the doctors told her that he didn't have a, a, very much time left to live because the pharmaceutical drugs were then shutting down his organs. And, you know, this is a woman who had never considered cannabis. She's, you know, religious. She's very conservative, self-described in those ways. And she just said, you know what, this is, this is my son's life. I will do anything, as would almost any parent on the planet. So she put him in the car. They moved to Colorado. Um, her husband and her other two sons joined them at a later point. And, you know, I think her family really questioned the decision. But at the end of the day, if 
you know, you're staring down, you know, fatality really and, and a terminal illness there. What, what are your options? And it's not been a perfect road, but his response to cannabis medicine has um, been pretty, pretty unbelievable to watch. And, you know, the family has enjoyed a much more normal quality of life because he's able to, you know, be a, be a much more high functioning child. He can play, he can talk, he can, you know, he's not seizure free, but it's night and day from the, the life that they had before. And, you know, as a country, I just, I really, it's surprising to me that we're not looking at stories like that more often than not and saying to ourselves, you know, why, why is a plant-based medicine worse than, than the opiate crisis? I mean, I don't, I don't, I know that we'll get there eventually, but it's still really hard for me to fathom that um, we're still having this debate given, you know, the data that's coming out about cannabis as a medicine and the, the efficacy that it has. I imagine you're out talking to a lot of people who don't know much about this, probably don't care much about this until um, I start asking questions. What's been some, more, some of the more effective points that you found talking to people about cannabis that really helped it to sink home to be more understanding of this plant medicine? Um, I think that being a female that has, you know, the story that I have, I was a former teacher. Um, I, you know, I shared my position on this plant. I think that that's given me a lot of, um, I don't know, I guess validity when I, when I'm speaking with different audiences, I, you know, I, I can go into a room and really try to relate to people and, and try to help them understand you know, where they're sitting now and why some of their knowledge and thinking on this might be outdated. Um, I think the community education piece that we talked about a little bit is extremely important. Um, and, you know, kind of tailing or tying this back to the book, um, part of the impetus for this book is that I, I think books signify learning and education. And I also think that they're very approachable um, tool for people. I'm not asking you to go into a dispensary. I'm not asking you to go visit a grow. I'm not asking you to try, you know, two or three different products while you make up your mind about this. I'm asking you to read a few stories. And I think that the format of the book has been really helpful. And we've received so many emails and messages through social media from people who said, you know, I bought this book for my mom because I've been having a really hard time explaining what I do for a living, or I, I bought this book for a friend of mine that um, really has been very skeptical about all of this. And the book has made a huge impact in that way. And, and I, I think that that's part of it as a format, because, you know, book, you can pick up a book that's controversial and choose to agree or not agree once you've read it. And I, I didn't really think about that at the time when we were putting this together. But um, I'm really happy about that, because it's, you know, it is something that can make a difference in its own small way. And, you know, we're not, <laughs> I've never, I'll never see a dollar from this book. And that's fine. That didn't, I never wanted to, I really wanted to tell these stories because they're important and they're compelling. And I think, um, you know, again, a book is a great way to break down barriers between people that, that don't understand this plant yet. And you, and you're planning to, to keep working on the book, uh, you said, and expand it? Yeah, I've been asked that a lot. Um, it's it's definitely an endeavor. So 
you know, I'm really excited about the growth that our company has experienced over the last year. And so committing a lot of time to this has been, has been a challenge, but um, I'm really interested in doing another edition and, and hopefully a few more editions over time because there's just so many more stories to be told. And when I look back at the book, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it. I, my one regret is that it, it is a little bit more Colorado-centric than I would have liked, and, and that's just a reflection of the people that I knew at the time when I needed to get this project done. So um, I'd like to do, you know, in, in the next round, I'd really like to spend more time talking to women from states like California that can really speak to being in this from 1997. And, you know, we've even met women that are starting companies as far away as Colombia and people doing great work in Germany. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of toying with a, a regional division in terms of, you know, do I do a California-based story? Um, do I break these stories down by theme? I think one thing that was cool about the format for this one is that the stories were very balanced. So you could hear from someone in healthcare or cultivation or product manufacturing. So if you were a woman picking it up, you could, you know, maybe you didn't read every story, but you read the ones that resonated with you. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of playing with a lot of different options and trying to get feedback from people based on, you know, what they'd like to see next. Yeah, well, I can only wish you the best of luck. Books are hard taskmasters. They are. <laughs> yeah, but this is a great project. Um, so Thank I'll just you. I'll just ask two more questions before I let you go and get back to to work. But for for the future, what what do you feel like are the biggest uh, challenges you see for the industry, and what are the the pieces that are the most exciting? Going back to preserving small business and small community within the greater industry. I think that that's going to be a challenge that we all need to be paying attention to if, if we want to protect what I believe is a very special um, culture. So that's, that's definitely an important one. And I think that how California shakes out is going to, to make a huge difference there. Um, so far, I think the way that the regulations have been put together and, and the application process promotes small businesses staying intact. So I think that that's really really great, but we're going to need to kind of watch that as the rest of the country takes shape. Um, we're, you know, like I said earlier, seeing larger groups moving into six or seven states now, and, and that's going to be really tough to kind of stay on top of. Um, in terms of things being exciting, I mean, <laughs> no day is the same. So that's always exciting for me. Uh, not always everybody's cup of tea, but I absolutely love waking up and everything every day being very, very different. Um, it's, it's an industry that offers a lot of opportunity to people across a huge range of careers, from business to hands-on cultivation, um, traditional professional services like accounting and law. So I, I really love that. And, you know, again, when I started in this, I was 25 or 26 and trying to figure out my own career path at the time. And I remember thinking that this could be whatever I wanted it to be. And that was, um, you know, incredibly powerful for me at that stage in my life. So I, I feel the same way. And um, I'm a huge proponent of people considering this industry for their own career path and, and for the same reason. That is a perfect uh, landing spot for the last question I wanted to ask. Uh, what advice would you give to any uh, female listeners out there who want to bring their ideas and their energy to the cannabis space? I have a great answer for this. <laughs> it comes from 
a really good friend of mine, Wanda James, who's in the book as well. And I forget, she'll kill me for this, but um, the quote is bloom where you are planted. And I think that the idea here is that you can come into this industry with a skill set that you already have. And certainly you can grow and pivot and make changes. But I think that that's the beauty of it, that we need people from all other career paths to be considering this. And, you know, if women have really innovative ideas, I mean, this is the time. Don't wait one more day. Um, You know, things are going really fast, but this is absolutely the time to dive in. And um, it's not the it's not the kind of industry where you can dive in slowly. I mean, you really have to make that commitment and live it and breathe it every single day if you want this to come to life in the in the time frame that it's going to need to. But I think generally speaking, a lot of people can benefit from looking at the skill set they already have. If you're if you are a you know, incredible graphic designer or an incredible CPA, um, consider building a business around something that you already do really well. That's sort of the essence of of blooming where you are planted and not necessarily having to reach way beyond that to be participating in this space. I think a lot of people hear cannabis and they think selling or growing. And those are certainly, you know, viable pathways, but they're not the only one. That is excellent advice. Uh, and uh, in fact, the, the opening quote for the Wanda James section of your book is a great way to end it. She says, it takes breasts of steel. <laughs> it really does. That's great. <laughs> it 100% does. <laughs> uh, well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for sharing about how people can, can get into this industry and, and do it right. Thank you again for having me. Um, you know, I, I welcome any opportunity I can find to kind of keep spreading that word. I think it's really important. And, um, you know, for anyone that's listening that is looking for a sounding board or looking for a community of women to kind of connect with and bounce ideas off of, I, I welcome emails. And I, I try my best to connect with people as much as I can to point them in the right direction. So if there are people out there that are looking for that, um, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Lex. All right. Thank you. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day.